Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA free and lead free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold so it seems like a smart investment look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout north america and ask for the original fabric container find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com Paxton Quigley is rolling out the green carpet, talking to the creme de la creme of innovators and influencers who are shaping the world of cannabis and culture Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Hello and welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. We've got some sports news, especially for our basketball fans. The NBA recently announced that it's suspending random testing for cannabis ahead of the 2021 basketball season. And you may know that NBA players have been talking about the benefits for years but only after they've retired, obviously. Now, former players Stephen Jack and Al Harrington have gone public with how cannabis has benefited them in a variety of ways during their careers. And Harrington told NBC Sports earlier this year, it's true medicine, not a drug. And speaking of medicine, today's guests are two very important doctors when it comes to cannabis. Dr. Samoon Ahmad and Kevin Hill. Dr. Kevin Hill. And they do have great resumes and they're pages and pages long, but I'm not going to go into all of that. Uh, Dr. Ahmad is a psychiatrist in New York. He's a unit chief at Bellevue Hospital Center's Acute Psychiatric Inpatient Unit. He's also professor of psychiatry at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, Plus, he also oversees a private practice in mental and physical wellness in New York City at the Integrative Center of Wellness. Do you have time to sleep, I wonder? That's what I asked myself (laughs) when I started reading this. When does he have time to sleep? I'm only kidding. Um, And then there's Dr. Kevin Hill. He's director of addiction psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And his research includes the development of medications to treat cannabis use disorder, as well as cannabis policy. And I'm really interested to find out what is meant by cannabis use disorder. The two doctors have just published a terrific book entitled Medical Marijuana, a Clinical Handbook. Doctors Ahmed and Helen, Hill have written a very timely, unbiased book that presents the benefits and risks associated with the use of cannabis. And that will help bring greater transparency to the debate over cannabis's legitimacy as a therapeutic drug. Now, personally speaking, I've read a lot of books about cannabis in the last couple of years. And folks, I gotta tell you, Medical Marijuana, a clinical handbook, so far is the best. 
And which really surprised me, it's constantly updated on its companion website, which is called CannabisTextbook.com. You can also order the book there. Now, I'd like to welcome Dr. Zamed and Hill. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Hello there. Hello, and thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for having us, Paxton. Certainly. Um, I'd like to start with uh, Dr. Hill. Uh, and and talk about uh, what the basketball player Al Harrington told NBC uh, when he said that marijuana is a true medicine, not a drug. Uh, Are you surprised that uh, he finally came out? And um, is it true what he says? I'm not surprised. I think, as you mentioned before, athletes have talked about potential benefits from cannabis for quite some time. And I'm not sure I agree entirely what uh, Mr. Harrington said. I mean, I think that it, it definitely is a medicine, but it also is a drug. If the definition of a drug is something that uh, y- the use of which could cause problems. And I think that speaks to a lot of what we cover in the book, that there are a lot of potential benefits with cannabinoids, including the cannabis plant, but there also are risks. And that's why when they should consider cannabis or other cannabinoids, they should do it under the care of a physician. Okay. Now, Dr. Ahmed, most doctors, and maybe it's not all doctors, you know, know about the cannabinoid system. Yet right now, so many doctors are still opposed to marijuana and don't know or don't want to admit the, the possibilities that medical marijuana can actually help people. Can you tell me what's going on here? Well, let me give you a little context. You know, um, at my age, uh, I am a, when I went to medical school, We graduated before 1990. And if we go back and try to understand the history of learning about the endocannabinoid system, that really came in the 1990s. So most of us who graduated before 1990, our knowledge and our uh, syllabus at the medical school really looked at uh, cannabis as a recreational drug. And we really didn't know anything about its so-called therapeutic value. So endocannabinoid system, cannabinoid receptors, learning about uh, endocannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, uh, its risks, its potential issues, concerns, they were all sort of an enigma. We really didn't know. And over a period of time, uh, it has been really very hard uh, to learn and undo all of those issues. As a part of the residency training, I think uh, we also learn primarily uh, and understand cannabis as a schedule one drug, which as a scientist and as a clinician puts us in a situation where anything that's schedule one is considered a drug which has no therapeutic potential and has a high risk of addiction. That's the prism through which physicians and scientists look, and that's how we define them. Now, to undo that, one has to try to understand the basic science, its constituents, its risks, its therapeutic efficacy. And unless you go looking for it on your own, it doesn't exist in terms of on a regular basis, in terms of uh, uh, reading about it anywhere. It's quite, I think, remarkable that most clinicians tend to continue to look at through the politics or through their own bias at this time. Hence, it's been a journey and it's the ignorance, I should say. And one of the impetus for the book, I have to admit, was my own ignorance. 
I was naive. You know, working in an inner city hospital, as you just mentioned, where 70 to 80% of the people that I'm treating are have comorbid substance use and the dysfunction that they go through, I always thought that was a result of where I would put under the same umbrella, cannabis, whether it's opioids, whether it's any other substance. While in my private practice, I would see the same patients, uh, but I mean, in, in terms of their diagnosis, uh, but their use there was quite different. They were using it just like you and I would have a glass of wine over the weekend. And you wouldn't see the same level of dysfunction. And I thought to myself, what am I missing in this picture? Such high dysfunction in an inner city indigent population versus other set where people are quite functional. And that led me to do a lot of due diligence at, with this. And I started to realize that it was the lack of knowledge and understanding. And that's why we decided to write this book and educate other clinicians in terms of looking at the therapeutic benefits, but recognizing that it's, there are consequences. And one has to really look at some of the adverse effects and risks of addiction, as well as impact on mental illness and wellness. And we are trying to educate our fellow brethren and clinicians. Now, you think that because of your book, perhaps the AMA could change their so-called uh, philosophy and uh, rewrite what they think about uh, cannabis? Do you think that's a possibility? You know, AMA was way ahead of the curve in 1937, I have to say, because when the Marijuana Tax Act came in 1937, AMA came out with a report at that time. And Dr. William Woodward, he was the only person, the only individual who was a witness and was in opposition to that act. And in fact, the report stated very clearly, I'll paraphrase it for you because I don't remember the exact wording of it, but more or less the AMA's uh, 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 final analysis was that even though the cannabis is less used as a medicine at, at that point in time, they, would, they wanted to keep it as it was at the time rather than have any kind of legalization regulations on it because they thought that for future research and scientists, it would serve well for looking at its therapeutic potential at the time. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. So over a period of time, we lost 50 years of education mm -hmm. and research at the time. And the clinicians that over the last 50 years that came were completely, didn't, didn't have enough knowledge. Number one, to sort of act in 1970, to sort of stand up to the Controlled Substance Act when cannabis was put as Schedule One at the time. And as a result, many of the people, whether they're in the legislative branch of the AMA or so, have been, I think in some ways, have not understood what had happened prior to where cannabinoids were lumped with opioids in the same thing. So I think where we are now, I'm hoping with all the research coming out at such a fast pace, and being a collaboration with national and international level with other countries, uh, AMA may start to begin to take a second look, especially when the states are now regulating with medical programs as well as recreational use. I think it's high time that they begin to revisit this. Interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Hill, um, I was reading about you and you talked about uh, uh, ki different kinds of 
drugs that are being developed uh, for cannabis disorders. Uh, what is that all about? Well, Paxton, I think it, it gets to kind of acknowledging that while there are plenty of people that are using cannabis therapeutically, there also is a subset of users who use and, and have a host of problems in various spheres, work, school, and relationships. So uh, cannabis can be addictive. Uh, for most people, it's not, but for, for a certain group of people, it is. And that's what we're talking about. In, in my clinic, uh, on a given day, I may see somebody in one hour who is using every day multiple times a day and they're not functioning very well and we're trying to help them reduce or stop their use of cannabis and in the next hour i might see somebody who has chronic back pain and they've tried multiple medications they've had multiple injections and they're interested in using cannabis as a therapeutic so i think we have to acknowledge that there are these two uh, extremes uh, in the sense that it can be very helpful for some people. It can be a problem for other people. And I think that's part of the problem, as Samoon alluded to, and part of the reason why we haven't made a lot of progress is because we have these two uh, deeply entrenched camps, people who are very, very pro-cannabis, people who are strongly anti-cannabis, and I, either group at various points uh, are guilty of spinning the data and misrepresenting the facts, unfortunately. Now, I know there have been a lot of medical conventions of late that maybe will have a special session on cannabis or cannabinoids. Uh, are, are you going to any of these um, uh, meetings and maybe being spokesperson or uh, how are, how, what's going on in that world? Another great question, Paxton. So, so I would say, you know, as as Samoon was alluding to before, that there is progress being made scientifically, but I, I would say in general that the people and the states are out in front of the medical associations. Uh, we're taught as physicians more about the dangers of cannabis than we are about the therapeutic benefits, uh, as Samoon was alluding to before, and and a lot of physicians are clamoring. About eight, you know, their study came out recently, 80% of doctors want more education about cannabis. So uh, they're not very familiar with the benefits. They're not sure about how to use it. And so while I've been speaking for years at conferences all over the place on these topics, I would say that physicians are slow to uh, become comfortable with this topic. And so progress is taking place, but it's happening rather slowly, I would say. Huh. Well, that's too bad. And when you're talking slowly, is it going to take another 50 years, do you think, for people to finally say, okay, you know, you've been right all the time. Um, Dr. Ahmed, what do you think about that? You know, I would like to sort of start with, I don't want to sound pedantic, but the word doctor comes from the Latin word doceo, which means to teach or to instruct. And I think as who we are, it's not just our job to treat people. It's our job to educate people, to instruct people in that. And I think we need to, if we take that responsibility, because if we are trying to put down our patients by saying, never, ever use this and this, you know what? Train has left the station. We're too late on that uh, and this and uh, on trying to undo anything. We need to educate ourselves significantly about all of the therapeutic benefits, as well as what Kevin was alluding to, 
in terms of understanding the risks associated with long-term use of it, particularly in predisposed populations with family history of illness or young maturing minds and adolescents of this or people with prior histories of all of these. And if we take that responsibility and we begin to educate people, I think we have a movement that can really change. But this needs to be done in a very collaborative and global manner. And I would emphasize the word education, education, and education. Because to make a difference at the basic level, uh, to educate the public, who needs to learn more? Clinicians, research scientists, they are the ones. But to do that, what do we need to do? We need to regulate, either reschedule, deschedule. I don't know, that's more for legalization purposes. But unless that's done, people will continue to review this plant as not having any therapeutic value and having no and very high addiction potential. And as what Kevin mentioned, the risk benefit analysis, that's what we do every day, whether it's stimulants, whether it's benzodiazepines, whether it's opioids, that's, our, that's what we are do. That's what we educate people for. But when it comes to cannabis, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I'll rephrase that, which is we look at through the lens and prism of politics and belief. And you know, belief is like religion. You either believe in God or you don't. There's no middle ground about it. And the same thing goes when we begin to understand uh, uh, as a divisive topic as cannabis use, for that matter, which is let's try to undo what has been done over the last 50 years and start a new fresh start at this time. So I, I think do they're th doing that, aren't they? Yeah, and I, don't you think it's happening right right now? Uh, we're getting, we seem to be having a lot of research. Uh, you know, I, I keep reading, you know, this doctor is doing it, this university is doing it, this medical center. So it seems like it's it's coming on full force. It's it's coming, but just to put things in perspective, there's only one university, University of Mississippi, which has medical marijuana research program where they're allowed to grow and do this. Doctors, you know, to, to, to do this on a large scale, the hoops that they have to jump through is just extraordinarily difficult. So unless you are in a huge academic setting with plenty of funding and all of this, it is really very hard and difficult. I agree with you that yes, we are moving, but we could move at a lot faster pace like Israel or other places. Yes, I was going to say, um, uh, my brother lives in Israel and he's always telling me, you know, Israel is doing this and Israel is doing that. Uh, what is happening in, in Israel in terms of, uh, of their research? What are they finding? Uh, do either of you uh, uh, can tell our, our listeners what's happening there? I leave it to Dr. Hill because, you know, he, he does a lot of research, so I'll, I'll leave it to him. Yeah, you know, so I, so I uh, am in contact with researchers in Israel, and I'd say one of the things that they do very, very well is that they're able to uh, do observational studies in a very effective way. And so people, and it gets to some of the issues that Simone alluded to, the difficulties in carrying out the gold standard randomized controlled trials in the United States, a variety of reasons why we're not doing it at the rate that we really should be. Uh, but in Israel, what they have done very, very well, in addition to a lot of the basic science, obviously they, you know, Dr. Meshalom synthesized many of the compounds that uh, we're covering in today's um uh, podcast, but in terms of the clinical studies, they're doing a lot of effective observational studies looking at cannabinoids and how they may be effective for things like fibromyalgia. And so uh, for uh, a country of its size, their output is tremendous. Yes, yes. 
Um, I wanted to continue with uh, you, Dr. Hill. Uh, right now, uh, I've got a, a number of friends that uh, are, are, are smoking a lot of marijuana. Uh, they're, you know, depressed. Uh, they're anxious because of, of COVID-19. Uh, I have other friends that all of a sudden they're uh, eating a lot of uh, a cannabis, uh, uh, shall we say, cookies and, and, and stuff like that. Um, do you see that as... as, as shall we say, a small answer to, to help people that right now, yes, let, let, let people, you know, do this if it makes them feel better and they're less depressed and less anxious. Well, Paxson, it, it's, a, it's a difficult question, right? And I think that every scenario, every, every person is different, really. What's going on? What are the problems they may have? What are the diagnoses they have? Because once we know what a given person is struggling with, then the question is, is cannabis or other cannabinoids, are they effective as a treatment for that particular problem? And so there are some conditions that cannabinoids have been helpful with. And you mentioned you're talking about a lot of psychiatric problems and a problem that I treat a lot of folks with these days during COVID or, or people who have what we call treatment refractory anxiety. So people who have either generalized anxiety disorder or other disorders in the anxiety spectrum where they've tried uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or other medications. They may have tried talk therapy and nothing is working. In those cases, we may consider cannabinoids like cannabidiol or CBD. And we've had a lot of luck uh, along those lines. So I think it's critical. And, and again, I said this earlier, Paxson, that when somebody is struggling during these times, and a lot of people are struggling. It's it's so challenging the last seven, eight months uh, during the COVID period. If you're struggling, please talk to a professional who can help figure out what are, is the problem or problems that we're dealing with, and then figure out if cannabis or other cannabinoids may be an answer there. They're not always the answer. They might be, and I think that's a big part of what Samoon and I wanted this book in the uh, companion website, CannabisTextbook.com, to be, to be a resource for clinicians who are encountering patients like this who have tried first-line, second-line treatments and are wondering what else they can do. And if those clinicians and patients are thinking about cannabinoids, we want them to have a resource where they can go to, where they can say, I'm treating this condition. Where is the evidence? They can look at our a textbook and figure that out. And they can also look at the textbook and figure out how to actually go about doing this. Uh, so that's really what we're hoping to do. So I think, you know, it's a, a long answer to your question, but it really depends upon what somebody is struggling with. Yes, I can understand that. Now, what about, and I'm going to address this to Dr. Ahmed, uh, what about psilocybin and, and cycle? Psych, you know, psych, psychedelics? Uh, are, are they going to be the next big thing? Uh, in terms of so-called helping people. Uh, what are you finding out about that? There has been an extensive uh, resurgence uh, in, on research in psychedelics out of John Hopkins, uh, recently at NYU uh, as well, and there are other centers. And it started actually, they started looking at initially patients with cancer who were dying and looking at their existential distress. That was part of uh, this. Um, and uh, one of the, as you mentioned, psilocybin was one of the main uh, substances that were used. But over a period of time, they are now starting to look at other things. I mean, psychedelics are not new. 
Um, it's unfortunate again that you know in the 1970s when they were banned for a lot of it had to do with politics rather than per se science. Uh, it has been shown, uh, particularly, and you know Kevin can uh, you know probably add to this, which is when they were doing studies, even with one dose of psilocybin, people with chronic alcohol use and alcoholism store short sobriety for quite prolonged periods of time. Uh, really? Correct. Absolutely. Uh, as well as now they're starting to look at role in PTSD, role in major depression. And the most fascinating area that's now starting to unravel is its role as anti-inflammatory agents, particularly like things like rheumatoid arthritis and other stuff uh, that's uh, they're starting to look at. Um, so there is so much that, and it's not a question of if, it's if is gone now, it's a question of just when. And in the next two to three years, you will start to see that these psychedelics will become, I think, a part of our war chest against PTSD, against depression and other things. Obviously there are phase two and clinical phase three trials going on. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I was able to interview one of the leading experts in the world uh, on psychedelics, who's Dr. Stephen Ross who has the addiction at NYU and also is the head of psychedelic center at NYU. And maybe you will be fortunate enough to actually bring him on and speak with him. Fascinating. He's like a walking encyclopedia. Really? Uh, on psychedelic. But wait, wait, maybe it's yeah. time for you to write a new book <laughs> on psychedelics, you know, get a head start, <laughs> a new textbook, a new book right. on that. I, yeah. I think I like that idea for you guys to do. No, but I, I think uh, it's, it's the next frontier. There are lots of uh, uh, interest in this area that's coming on. And I would say that uh, it, it, it's, it has shown quite promising results at this time. And you will begin to see in the next coming year or two, a lot of data on alcoholism, on major depression, on PTSD and, and other indications. Interesting, interesting. Now I wanna go back to uh, Dr. Hill uh, and talk about drug policy in the United States. And uh, when do you think it'll start shifting away from incarceration and, and more towards treatment and rehabilitation? I think it is shifting, uh, Paxton. I think when you look at the, the policies that have been slowly being rolled out in, in each state now, I mean, again, you know, even over the last handful of years, we've seen more and more states enact medical cannabis policies, more and more states enact legalized recreational cannabis policy. So uh, when it comes to more lenient cannabis policy, the trains left the station clearly. And I think that a lot of what we talk about in the book and a lot of our hope with the book is to help the medical establishment catch up with what people want. Because when we come, when we talk about these policies, what I've always said, I mean, you as a physician, you may or may not want legalization or you may or may not want medical cannabis. But at the end of the day, I'd hope that policies are in place that give people what they want while limiting the risk. I think that's really where we ought to be. And so I think one of the problems that we've had with some of these policies, physicians on the whole are so cautious and reticent to get involved and they often will oppose these policies. But in a state like mine, Massachusetts, where the policies get voted for, uh, we have medical, we have legal recreational cannabis, uh, the physicians often are not part of the solution. They're not helping 
contribute to the policies. And so I think that's a, a missed opportunity in many places. And so we encourage Samoon and I with physicians that we speak to, we encourage physicians, whether or not you're in favor, uh, it really doesn't matter quite as much if you're in a blue state, let's say, where it, it's going to happen or it's already happened, then let's uh, take your knowledge and be a part of the solution and help implement policies that, again, help people get access to a medication or something they want to use while also being cognizant of the potential risks that are there. You know, I wish we could talk for another half hour, but, you know, time has run off and I'm, I'm sorry that, and what, but what I'd like to do when you have some more information, uh, I'd love to have you, you back on, but I want to tell people that uh, they can find your book, Medical Marijuana, a clinical handbook on their website, which is cannabistextbook.com. You can also go to Amazon or even to our website, which is paxtonquigley.com. Uh, and also you can, uh, by going to Paxton Quigley, you can hear this entire broadcast and all of the contact information uh, for the two terrific uh, doctors that we've had on today. And, uh, and that's at paxtonquigley.com. And uh, we appreciate uh, uh, all of your work and thank you very much. And we want to wish you both a very happy new year and, uh, and talk to you again in 2021. And hopefully things will be far better than they are right now. And uh, to our audience, uh, feel free to get in touch with us. We're, we're a talk show, but we also listen. And also, I'd like to thank our listeners who've purchased my novel. It's called Just Try Me, and it's available on Amazon. Again, thank you very much. And we here at High Society, uh, and that includes a lot of different people, including my wonderful producer, Maureen. Uh, we'd like to wish all of our listeners a safe, happy, healthy, and harmonious new year. I'm Paxton Quigley. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet take-anywhere treat. 